Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Onelen Zinti, Jalani Tulo and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour... One suspect involved in the attacks on the officers of French magazine Charlie Hebdo surrenders to police and thousands of Central African Republic refugees continue to flood into Cameroon. In our sports news, Cricket South Africa announces its World Cup squad. But first up, the news with Onelen Sinti. French police have identified three suspects following the fatal attack on the Paris offices of the Charlie Hebdo sectorical magazine yesterday. Police named two of the brothers, Sheriff and Saeed Kochi. The third suspect, who is 18 years old, is the younger suspect related to the brothers, turned himself in to the police in a town 70 kilometers from Reims, where a police search is underway. Three masked gunmen stormed into the media house, killing at least 12 people and wounding 11 more before escaping. The incident has been described as France's deadliest terrorist attack in decades. President François Hollande has declared today a day of national mourning. A man puppeting to be the leader of Nigerian militant sect Boko Haram has threatened to step up violence in neighboring Cameroon unless it scrapes its constitution and embraces Islam. The video posted online this week shows a man who looks like a group's, group's head, Abubak Shekau, who but is filmed from a distance at a different angle. The group, which has killed thousands and kidnapped hundreds in its bid to carve out an Islamic state in northern Nigeria, Nigeria has also targeted Cameroon over the past year. Nigeria last year accused Cameroon of not doing enough to tackle Boko Haram. But since then, Islamist attacks have risen in Cameroon and the country has responded by killing scores of their fighters. Heavily armed police officers have evicted more than 200 families from a farm in eastern Zimbabwe to create space for a game park posted by First Lady Grace Mugabe. Police officers and members of Zimbabwe's Secret Service turned up at Arnold Farm of Mazowi District on Tuesday, forcing the residents to leave without notice. Non-profit organization Zimbabwe's lawyer for human rights says these evictions are a violation of the court order. The organization says it will be filing for contempt of court against the police. President Robert Mugabe launched a wave of farm seizures from the year 2000 to resettle black farmers on land previously owned by whites. 
Botswana's former Vice President General Montapi Mirafe has died at the age of 79. He died at his home in Sirowe in Botswana. Mirafe started his career in the Botswana Police Service in 1971. He was prompted to Deputy Police Commissioner Bafidile Muerane Hesmo. Mumpadi standardum began to shine in 1997 when Botswana's founding president Siratakama asked him to form Botswana Defense Force. He was appointed a specially elected member of parliament and minister of presidential affairs and public administration. In 1994, he was elected MP for Mahalabje and moved to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, where he remained until 2008 when President Ian Kama appointed him vice president. He is considered to have excelled as former foreign affairs minister, resulting in former president Nelson Mandela. Mandela of South Africa, recommending him for the championship of the Commonwealth Ministerial Act Group. Funeral preparations as well, condolences or memorial service events are yet to be announced. Finally, the South African government says it will not rest until all the mortal remains of the remaining 11 South Africans who died in Nigeria last September are brought home to their families. Scientists are tr- struggling to identify the remaining victims of the Nigerian building collapse. 85 South Africans died after the Synagogue Church of All Nations building collapsed in Lagos. 74 bodies have been successfully identified and have since been buried. Government spokesperson Pumla Williams says the situation is beyond their control. We were hoping that by the end of the year we would have concluded the matter. But I think we want to assure the families that we are on track with us. We are following up with the family, uh, with the authorities, the Nigerian authorities. And as soon as we are uh, given a go-ahead, we will certainly be interacting with the families again. We don't want to be promising because we don't know. But what we can promise is that we are still committed as government not to let this matter go away. I do appreciate that some of the families feel anxious. Channel Africa News. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The French President François Hollande has declared a national day of mourning following the attacks on the offices of French magazine Charlie Hebdo in Paris. Hamid Mourad, 18, and brother Saeed Kouachi, 34, and Sharif Kouachi, 32, were named in a police document as suspects. Jack Parrick reports from Paris. Twelve people were killed in the attack on Charlie Hebdo, a satirical French newspaper. The three men involved are believed to be Islamist extremists. The vehicle the gunmen escaped in, a black Citroen hatchback, was later found abandoned in the north of Paris. France's biggest ever manhunt to find the perpetrators resulted in an anti-terror raid in the northeastern French city of Reims. The French president, François Hollande, called for solidarity with the victims. Ce sont aujourd'hui nos héros. Today they are our heroes, and that is why I have decreed that tomorrow will be a national day of mourning. At 12 o'clock there will be a moment of contemplation for all public services, and I invite all the population to take part in it. The flags will be at half-mast for three days. 
The killings have also drawn the condemnation of political figures around the world. But this attack isn't the first time Charlie Hebdo has been targeted. Back in November 2011, the HQ was firebombed. That's because cartoons of Muslim leaders and the Prophet Mohammed on its cover in compromising positions have drawn disdain from many within the Muslim community. A huge outpouring of sentiment has been seen on the streets of Paris, however. Thousands headed to a vigil in the heart of the city. And we spoke to some of those who attended. It created some emotion inside me, but not fear, not uh, danger, just... um Maybe the uh, feeling that uh, I can't accept that. For me, it's a little shocking because uh, as uh, somebody came just all of a sudden and killed four or five people just all of a sudden because of the fact that, okay, they don't accept what they write, so it's something uh, which is really, really not acceptable, so that's why I'm here. The three suspects involved in the shootings are thought to have links to terrorist groups and to be known to French authorities, leading many to question how they were able to conduct these killings. Jack Parrick. Paris. It has been announced that presidential and par- parliamentary elections will be held in South Sudan on June the 30th this year. James Shimanyula reports. The announcement that the presidential and the parliamentary elections will take place on the 30th of June this year was made in South Sudan, capital Juba, by the chairman of the country's National Election Commission, Abednego Akok. The commission have been deliberating on the processes of the elections in 2015, as stated in the Constitution and the National Elections Act 2012. The election will be conducted on 30th of June 2015. But the holding of the election has prompted protests from opposition leaders who contend that large-scale insecurity will make it impossible for the elections to take place. Taking the lead in the protest is Ezekiel Lol Gatkoth, Foreign Affairs Secretary General in Riek Machar's rebel group. How can you claim that you are going to have election in June? It is not feasible. It is actually just a joke of the year. It is actually unacceptable because nobody will be focusing in having election, even if there is security in the area that they are claiming to control. You cannot uh, conduct election. The money that you are using to run election, you should actually be providing this money to feed your people. Gartquoth says it is extremely impossible to conduct elections in the country when fighting is still raging between government troops and rebels loyal to former Vice President Riek He points out that the government troops are operating exclusively in Bor town in Jongle State, north of the South Sudan capital Juba, and that they are also in Malakal in the Upper Nile State, north of the capital. They are just only in Bor. In the other areas, they are not there. In Upper Nile State, they are only in Malakal, and the rest of Upper Nile State, they are not there. Former Justice Minister Johnny Luke, who was one of the seven veteran politicians detained in December last year for allegedly plotting to topple the government of President Salva Kiir, says elections can only take place once the current conflict is resolved amicably. Elections cannot be held because of insecurity. Insecurity cannot 
allow elections to be run. But Information Minister Michael McQuay says the country's constitution stipulates that the election must be held this year. Managing Director of the Juba-based think tank Imoni Center, Lual Deng, says due to continued insecurity in South Sudan, elections cannot take place. But Deng does not rule out amendment to South Sudan constitution to pave the way for holding the elections. The condition are not right to conduct elections. There are alternatives. The national legislature can amend the constitution to extend its tenure for another 36 months beginning July 9, 2015. Politically, the country is divided. And this is a quarrel within the family. It's not like war between the North before. The war of liberation is purely a civil war. Leader of opposition SPLMDC, Lama Kol, concurs with those opposing the holding of the elections. Elections should be held when there is peace. They never have elections when people are still fighting. That was Lama Kol, leader of South Sudan's opposition group SPLMDC. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. South Africa's ruling ANC has stepped up its campaign to convince its support base in the country's coastal province of the Western Cape to attend the party's 103rd birthday bash over the weekend. President Jacob Zuma and the ruling party's top brass have been crisscrossing the province to drum up support ahead of the annual January 8th statement, which will be delivered by Zuma at the Cape Town Stadium on Saturday. Tsepo Ikaneng reports. President Jacob Zuma's Umshinwam's trademark song got hundreds of ANC supporters in the Poland in the frenzy mode. The ruling party has targeted the Western Cape's rural and township constituencies to show up support ahead of next year's crucial local government elections. President Zuma has urged the party's faithful to use their vote to help the ruling party to reclaim control of the only province that is under control of the opposition Democratic Alliance. Their plight or their success is in their own hands. That they must vote in their number to ensure that we change the government in this province so that they can make progress. We want to remind them that it is in their hands and we are therefore going to be paying more attention particularly next year during the local government elections. That's when we must change the Western Cape as a starting point before we change the province. And that's why we are here reminding the people of their task that this province must be finally be liberated and have everybody being treated equally. That's the message of the was acknowledging president's visit to their area some locals had serious grievances here in the western cave there's too much apartheid if you are back you won't succeed only what people benefit we hope that president Zuma's visit will make the difference said this man I'm so hurt that we are still living in these shacks, says this woman. We always vote, but we don't get any relief from staying in these appalling conditions. The president had in the meantime wished the ruling party well and to celebrate its 133rd anniversary today. We are saying happy birthday, the ANC. We are 
celebrating 103 years of the ANC's existence. We are saying this organization is the most experienced with policies that are superior to any other policies. That's why we are happy that it fought to liberate the people of this country. Now we are, we are fighting to change the quality of life. And this is the organization to do so. There is no other organization for now to carry that task. President Zuma will today embark on a walkabout in Michel's Plain and address a mini rally in Kailicha Township on the Cape Flats. Tsepo Ikaneng in Cape Town. Meanwhile, President Jacob Zuma is expected to give direction in terms of how the country will deal with the current economic challenges, including the power crisis, when he delivers the ruling African National Congress January 8th statement on Saturday in Cape Town. The African National Congress, which turns 103 years today, finds itself grappling with an economy that is shedding jobs and growing at a very low rate. The ruling party has acknowledged that there are a number of challenges facing the economy. Murafet Tabane reports. Most analysts expect this year's January 8th statement not to be too different from the previous years. Associate Professor of Economics at Verse University, Christopher Malekane, says at the top of the list is likely to be a radical transformation of the economy. He maintains that over the past years, a number of promises made in the January 8th statements have not been achieved. He outlines the reasons why this is the case. Structurally, the reason why those things were not achieved is precisely because there has not been any transformation in the structure of ownership and control of the South African economy. So as a result, what the ANC is calling for on one hand cannot be achieved given the current structure of the economy. For example, the issue just raised the issue of unemployment. The issue of unemployment is linked to the issue of industrialization. And industrialization is linked to, to beneficiation of raw minerals. And beneficiation of raw minerals is linked to ownership and control. Meanwhile, the chairperson of the ANC's Economic Transformation Committee, Inogodongwana, expects the statement to be different in many aspects, including the assessment of what has been achieved in line with the values espoused in the Freedom Charter. We are celebrating 103 years of the uh, formation of the and establishment of the African National Congress in the context of also celebrating 60 years of the Freedom Charter. And a key aspect of that is an evaluation of how far we've given content to the Freedom Charter. I would imagine, I'm not necessarily saying I'm at liberty to disclose what the president is likely to say. Godongwana also expects the president to talk about the current power challenges in the country. The second set of issues is that among other things which has confronted us last year has been the, the supply bottlenecks in the economy, particularly the issue of electricity. I would imagine Given its national significance, the president will probably say something about that. However, Professor Malikani says the plan to sell certain government assets in order to deal with the problems facing ESCOM will be a grave mistake. Malikani expects the president to clarify government's position on this matter. They've already said that in the, in, in the budget statement, ESCOM will have to be financed. And so the way they're going to finance that is through the sale of non-core assets, particularly government shares. In, in Vodacom, which is going to be, a, a, in my view, a big blunder. So what government has to do, really, you need to look at the value chain of uh, power, uh, energy production in South Africa. You need to look at the coal mines. 
who owns the coal mines and how are coal prices set for the benefit of ESCOM so that ESCOM can lift the economy. So you need to look at ownership and control of the coal mines. You need to look at ownership and control of how ESCOM is actually run. The January 8th statement will set the tone for what is likely to happen throughout 2015. It will also highlight some of the key aspects to be contained in the President's State of the Nation address in February. I'm Morafi Tabani in Johannesburg. Sri Lankan President Mahinda Rajapaksa, seeking a third term in today's election, is facing a serious challenge from a former aide. Allegations of abuse of state power and nepotism have frittered away goodwill he earned after he ended three decades of Tamil separatist violence with force in 2009. Rana Sen reports. When the Sri Lankan leader ordered elections two years ahead of schedule, Rajapaksa was seen as the favourite to cruise to victory on the back of support from the island's majority Sinhalese population. But an unexpected revolt led by Maitripala Sri Sena, his former health minister, prompted more than 20 of his lawmakers and ex-ministers to defect to the other side. The coalition led by Sri Sena, who until November was also the general secretary of the president's ruling Freedom Party, seems confident of dethroning Rajapakse on the accusations the leader built a family empire. This prompted him to order snap polls, said South Asian expert S.D. Muni. He knows that the erosion of the base has started. So if he waits for two more years, it's not only his coterie. Coterie is built by him. But somehow he has got the family on the board, which uh, he is finding difficult to distance with. Almost 73 to 75 percent of the country's budget is controlled by the family. In addition to this control, he was not letting anybody else come in the limelight. So party was getting alienated from him. Rajapaksa began his second term after winning the elections in 2010 with the promise of an economic miracle in post-war Sri Lanka. But the boom has frayed, with growing foreign debt, domestic inflation and unrest hammering the economy, said former Indian diplomat Kanwal Sibal as the island nation of 20 million people prepared to vote today. There is more than what is happening inside Sri Lanka, the erosion of uh, the coalition and the fact that because of price rises and inflation and other issues like that and the loss in provincial elections, he feels that if he goes to the polls now and wins the mandate, it will be much easier doing it now than two years later when uh, probably he would uh, have losing the election uh, much more than is likely now. Rajapaksa also faces Western allegations of war crimes over the killings of tens of thousands of ethnic Tamil civilians in 2009. But analyst Srinivasan Raman said the wily Sri Lankan politician has managed to buy peace at the international front. I think Rajapaksa has played the international pressure card very well. He has managed to create an impression that the international community is out to get him and therefore that's an affront to Sinhala Buddhist nationalism. At the same time, he has also used the divisions in the international community very well. So he has cultivated a good relation with China. He has tried to mitigate the pressure. But the United States, India and several Western powers will closely watch today's contested Sri Lanka which straddles an increasingly strategic spot as China seeks to raise its naval presence in the Indian Ocean and in the waters around the troubled Middle East. This is Rana Sen reporting from New Delhi. The Zimbabwean government has finally defended its decision to sell 62 baby elephants to China so as to raise money for the upkeep of Hangwe National Park. Hangwe National Park is the largest in Zimbabwe and has been affected 
by massive poaching. Recently, the national park lost almost 400 elephants due to cyanide poisoning. Meanwhile, a fierce debate is currently taking place with animal lovers blocking the move. Simon Muchema reports from Harare. Zimbabwe's acting environment minister, Walter Mzembi, on Wednesday defended the sale of the country's baby elephants to China, United Arab Emirates and France. Mzembi said the Zimbabwean elephants will be sold between 40000 and 60000 US dollars depending on age. The money is aimed at cushioning Wange National Park, the largest in the country. The acting environment minister condemned what he termed the international politicking around the sale of 62 Zimbabwean baby elephants. Muzembe made the remarks during a media briefing convened by the Royal Netherlands Embassy who will be sponsoring the participation of representatives of the tourism industry in the Benelux market for 2015. Muzembe had this to say. Uh, as it looks, it does look like a lot of politicking at first value from the initial reports that I have received. Uh, a lot of international politicking around this uh, elephant issue. Uh, and clearly, it is not a secret that uh, our habitat uh, is not designed to carry the too many elephants that is uh, in its uh, uh, environment now, as it were. We, we have an overpopulation of elephants. Meanwhile, plans by the Zimbabwean authorities to sell 62 baby elephants to foreign buyers has set off a firestorm of debate in Zimbabwe and among international animal rights activists. Johnny Rodriguez, chairman of the Zimbabwe Conservation Task Force, is leading a team of local conservationists in the petition to parliament this month over this elephant deal. Mozambi indicated that there are various ways to deal with overpopulation and selling the African jumbos is one of them. There are various methods of dealing with the overpopulation of elephants. You can cull, okay? You can sell them with the, uh, the permission and compliance to international treaties to other countries that <coughs> offer uh, uh, appropriate habitats, okay? Uh, you can do trophies, which you would be aware of. Uh, we are not benefiting from them after the executive order against us from the U.S. Uh, and yet we still have to raise uh, a conservation fund to sustainably manage uh, uh, the environment, to, to look after our, our environment on a sustainable basis. However, Zimbabwe and Tanzania have been banned from exporting sport-hunted African elephant trophies over alleged questionable management practices and lack of effective law enforcement. The United States Fish and Wildlife Services imposed the ban when news of elephant poisoning in a Zimbabwean Wange National Park started coming out. Zimbabwe has also failed to dispose 70 tons of stockpile of ivory and 5 tons of rhino horn due to a ban on trade on ivory and rhino products by the conservation on international trade in endangered species of wild fauna and flora known as CITES. Meanwhile, 
Minister Mzembi statement comes at a time when conservationists have petitioned the European Union Parliament against the sale of Zimbabwean baby elephants. So it's a chicken and egg. So we are looking at that and uh, I have a letter from the Professional Hunters Association of uh, the United States signed a petition by over 33 uh, tourism agencies who have appealed to me as Minister of Tourism. And I said to them that I will reply you as both Minister of Tourism and Environment after weighing both uh, ends of uh, this debate. Uh, because you cannot have your cake and eat it too. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. An international oil expert says the price of brand crude oil is expected to drop to a record low of 40 US dollars a barrel this year. This could mean more petrol price relief for local motorists. The price of petrol dropped again this week by more than one rand a litre. International Brent crude oil hit below 50 US dollars a barrel yesterday, the lowest it has been in six years. It was trading at over 100 US dollars a barrel in June last year. Amina Akram reports. Energy analysts say a combination of aggressive traders selling crude oil together with oil exporting countries resisting calls to cut oil output are major factors behind the lower international oil prices. International oil prices dropped almost 50% mid last year after three years of the highest average prices in history at over 100 US dollars a barrel. Tom Nelson is portfolio manager at London based Investec offices for global energy. He blames Saudi Arabia's unwillingness to play a moderating role in the oil market as the main reason for the rapid decrease in oil prices. The, the Saudi attitude is now that they will, uh, they are happy to cut their selling prices, particularly to Asia, uh, to maintain their market share. What has taken the oil price from 80, you know, down to 50 and into the high 40s is this complete change in the Saudi attitude and Saudi behavior towards the oil price. So we no longer have that market moderator, uh, and that has meant that the market has been turned over really to the traders, and of course the traders at the moment are aggressively selling crude oil. But the slide in energy costs have been good news for the local economy, mainly for consumers. Motorists are already reaping the rewards of cheaper petrol prices, and further cuts are expected. Senior economist at Frost and Sullivan, Craig Parker, says this will also have an impact on the rate hiking cycle by the South African Reserve Bank. He expects the Reserve Bank to keep rates on hold for longer. The lower oil price would actually benefit inflation uh, rates uh, because uh, lately we've been struggling with uh, supply-side inflation and this has mainly been caused by um, you know higher uh, fuel prices that we've uh, been importing. It lowers the energy and fuel uh, constraints that many households have, especially on the on the poorer end of the spectrum because th- that spend is, is a substantially higher proportion of their uh, monthly uh, expenditures. Parker says the local manufacturers are also to benefit from the lower oil prices. It also gives uh, the local logistics industry uh, a boost, um, and this lowers the the input uh, costs for for manufacturers. So uh, transport costs uh, will be lower. This is especially relevant when it comes to the price of diesel. Tom Nelson, however, warns that 2015 will be the year for stronger demand, especially from Asia, which could rapidly push the price of oil to record highs. He says Brent crude oil will average between 70 and 75 US dollars 
a barrel this year, reaching $8 in the last quarter of 2015. He also warns that geopolitical tensions like elections in Africa's biggest oil-producing country and succession talks in Saudi Arabia could cause risk to the supply side, which the market underestimates. Uh, could we go into the high and mid-40s? Yes, of course we could. But the lower we go, the, the, the sharper the snapback will be. Uh, because the lower we go, the more production is taken out, uh, the more supply is delayed, uh, and the more, uh, the more demand is stimulated. Major oil-producing countries are already starting to feel the impact of the rapid short-term decreases in oil price. An economist for BP in Angola says his country, which depends on oil, a major contributor to Angola's GDP, is seeing negative and visible signs of the price decrease in oil. Oil producing companies are also feeling the effects. Uh, lower oil prices do lead to a, a cap on exploration and, and even the closure of marginal oil fields uh, globally. That report by Amina Akram. It's 8.32 Central African time and our headlines are up next with Onelentinti. French President François Hollande declares today a national day of mourning following the attack of the office of French magazine Charlie Hebdo in Paris yesterday. A man puppeting to be the leader of Nigerian militant sect Boko Haram threatens to step up violence in neighboring Cameroon unless it scrapes its constitution and embraces Islam. And the South African government says it will not rest until all the mortal remains of the remaining 11 South Africans who died in in Nigeria last September are brought home to their families. Channel Africa News. Thousands of Central African Republic refugees continue to flood into Cameroon despite a shaky peace deal signed between the warring Seleka rebels and the anti-Balaka militia. The refugees fleeing the carnage in their country are finding relative peace in refugee camps in Cameroon. Moki Kinziga visited them in eastern Cameroon where they struggle between growing humanitarian needs and hostile host communities and filed the following report. Yvette Faradongo has just lost her two-year-old daughter to malnutrition after she managed to save her life from the raging war in the Central African Republic. She trekked for three weeks from CAR's Beriberati village to eastern Cameroon. She says she had to run for her life after her son got a bullet in the leg and her sister was killed in confrontations between the Muslim Seleka and Christian anti-Balaka rival groups. Every Central African I met here at the Giwa Yagombo refugee camp in eastern Cameroon has a story of horror, pain and trauma. Francis Dengo lost his wife in the sectarian violence before escaping from CAR. He says he continues to get bad news from his country. He says he has just been informed that his cousin was shot dead 
and that the rest of his family sought refuge in the Bangui Bimbo St. Mark Major Seminary in CAR, but that what is more important for him now is his survival in Cameroon. The influx of refugees into Cameroon has dropped from 10,000 a week to slightly over 8,000 people, according to the UNHCR. Some humanitarian agencies, like the Cameroon Red Cross, attribute the drop to the inability of those suffering from malnutrition to make the long and difficult journey to Cameroon. UNHCR Field Officer Constantia Terebe says her organization, along with other aid agencies, has been struggling as best they can to treat the exhausted and malnourished refugees. Uh, we are working on this and we are trying to recover all these people because they have been traveling for a long time, maybe weeks or some of them they have been walking through the, the, the forest coming from uh, some part of the RCA. So they come exhausted and uh, they come with, uh, well, some health issues. But this is why health is one of the major uh, assistance that UNHCR and its partners give to the refugees. Refugee Francis Dengo says even with their disturbing health conditions, they are still exploited by their host communities and harassed by Cameroon's local government officials. La libre circulation, il n'y a pas. La raison, c'est que he says they are not free to move out of the camps even when they are hungry and Cameroon security forces don't recognize their food rationing card issued by the UNHCR as identification documents. He says when they get to a police checkpoint and present the card, they are accused of being at the origin of the carnage in the country. He adds that some of them are even asked to pay bribes to remain in Cameroon. He says some people hired them to work in their farms, and once the work is done, they refuse to pay. Des personnes viennent les solliciter pour aller faire des petits travaux par-ci par-là, et une fois le travail fini, pour les payer de l'argent, c'est un problème. Constancia Teribe says if Cameroon recognizes the refugee identification documents they issue it will be a solution to some of the problems. There's a very young operation and to issue the, the refugee card, it takes time because it needs to be agreed with the Cameroon uh, government. So we are working on it and we hope that we will be in the position to facilitate this document, accreditate that they are refugee and their situation in the country. Augustin Dolly Debat, retired engineer from CAR's capital Bangui, says despite the problems, they will not return to their home country anytime soon because Cameroon for now is the better of two devils. Question de repartir ne pas repartir, c'est lié à beaucoup de facteurs. Vous savez que il faut d'abord qu'il y ait la paix dans le pays. He says the question of going back or not will only be addressed when peace returns to his country. If we come to Cameroon, it is because we know that Cameroon is a peaceful country. So if there is no peace, we can't envisage a return and how will the person who decides to go back home survive after losing everything he says. Last July 2014, rebel groups in the Central African Republic signed a ceasefire in Brazzaville, 
Republic of Congo, promising to end violence against civilians, respect human rights, and halt religious and tribal hate. The agreement between the Seleka and Antibalaka rebels, who have been fighting each other and brutally targeting the civilian population since September 2013, was an important milestone, but the refugees say it has not been respected. The UNHCR estimates more than 200,000 CAR refugees are currently in Cameroon. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzika. Oil giant Royal Dutch Shell has agreed to a $84 million settlement with residents of the Bodo community in the Niger Delta for two oil spills. Lawyers for 15,600 Nigerian fishermen say their clients will receive $3,300 each for losses caused by the spills. The remaining $30 million will be left for the community, which was devastated by two massive oil spills in 2008 and in 2009. They say they affected thousands of hectares of mangrove in South Nigeria. Joe Westby is corporate and human rights campaigner for Amnesty International. It's true that Shell had accepted that these spills were caused by operational failure. However, what we can ask ourselves is, if the case hadn't gone to the UK courts, what kind of level of compensation could the Bodo community really have expected to get? And Shell actually said this morning that their original offer to the community was around about £4,000. So clearly, if this case hadn't gone to the UK courts, the community would really have been completely swindled. It's only because of this case that Shell was forced to disclose important information about these spills, including admitting that the spills were larger than they had been originally claiming. Um, And we've always maintained that the spills were much, much larger than Shell's original investigation found up to 60 times large. So really, it has taken far too long, and it's completely unacceptable that the community has had to wait for six years to receive a measure of compensation, and the area itself is still not cleaned up. Why did the clients, I mean the Nigerian fishermen, the plaintiff, why did they go to the UK courts? Could the case not have been tried in Nigeria? It's a good question. I mean, usually what happens when oil spills occur in the Niger Delta is that compensation is negotiated directly between the oil company and the community. It usually means for most communities is that they do not receive meaningful or proper compensation that really addresses the impact of the spill. Often many people who have suffered as a result of the pollution, particularly women, are excluded from the compensation process. There are cases which have gone to the Nigerian court, but the court justice system in Nigeria is slow. And again, going back to the disclosure, in the Nigerian court system, Shell would never have been forced to disclose what it has done in the UK case, which includes not only admitting that the spills were larger than they had been claiming for years, but also they've been forced to disclose that they've known since at least 2002 that their infrastructure and pipelines in the Niger Delta are aging and outdated and hazardous. And that is a cause of many oil spills, more than Shell would admit to. So really, 
although it's fantastic news for the Bordeaux community, it does show how difficult it is for communities in, in the Niger Delta whose lives have been devastated by oil pollution, as so many have, to really get proper justice and to get proper compensation and clean up from the companies. Now, apparently the plaintiffs originally sought for $400 million from Shell during this three-year legal battle. But now, as we know, they have finally settled for the $83 million. Would you call this the largest payout to an entire community after this devastating environmental damage by Shell? It certainly is an unprecedented payout for communities affected by oil pollution in the Niger Delta. It's the first time that we're aware of that Shell has been taken to the UK courts and has had to pay this much to the community. And it really, what we hope is that this opens the door to other communities being able to challenge Shell in the courts and take their cases to the courts in the country's home states, like the UK or or Netherlands. And that was Joe Wisby, corporate and human rights campaigner for Amnesty International on the line from London, speaking to Josejo Dingake. It's 8.45 Central African time and our economics update up next with Jalani Tulo. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. A further drop in oil prices is expected as the Brent hit a six-year low, trading below $50 a barrel yesterday. South African motorists saw relief at the pumps as the price of petrol dropped by more than one rand a litre. Tom Nelson, an international oil expert, says the price of Brent crude oil is expected to drop to a record low of $40 a barrel this year. Nelson blames Saudi Arabia for the drastic drop in oil prices. The, the Saudi attitude is now that they will, uh, they are happy to cut their selling prices, particularly to Asia, uh, to maintain their market share. And what has taken the oil price from 80, you know, down to 50 and into the high 40s is this complete change in the Saudi attitude and Saudi behavior towards the oil price. So we no longer have that market moderator, uh, and that has meant that the market has been turned over really to the traders, and of course the traders at the moment are aggressively selling crude oil. Nigerian stocks have dropped for the biggest three-day decline since August 2006 as oil prices traded near $50 a barrel yesterday. The Nigerian stock exchange All Share Index retreated 4.2% by the close in Lagos, the most among 93 global indexes. The gauge down 16% last year rose 20% between December 17th and the end of the year as investors were attracted to the low prices. Banks were among the worst performers. Shares of Zenith Bank, the country's second biggest lender by assets weakened 9.7% the most since October 2008. 
Zambia's currency is having its worst start in six years amid a dollar shortage before presidential elections in Africa's second biggest copper producer. The Kwacha retreated for a third day, weakening at 0.3% to 6.55 per dollar. They extended 2015 losses to 2.5%, the biggest slide at the turn of the year since the first week of 2009. An industry lobby group says a new increased mining royalty system that started this year may hinder production and cut revenue, also threatening to pressure the kwacha. South Africa's ruling ANC finds itself grappling with an economy that is shedding jobs and growing at a very low rate. President Jacob Zuma is expected to give direction of how the country will deal with the current economic challenges, including the power crisis, when he delivers the ANC's January 8th statement on Saturday in the mother city Cape Town. The party turns 103 years today. Morafe Dabani reports. Most analysts expect this year's January 8th statement not to be too different from the previous years. Associate Professor of Economics at Verse University, Christopher Malekane, says at the top of the list is likely to be a radical transformation of the economy. He maintains that over the past years, a number of promises made in the January 8th statements have not been achieved. Meanwhile, the chairperson of the ANC's Economic Transformation Committee, Inogo Dongwana, expects the statement to be different in many aspects, including the assessment of what has been achieved in line with the values espoused in the Freedom Charter. And finally, South Africa's power utility ESCOM says although the grid has stabilized, it is still under immense pressure. One of their generating units, which experienced problems yesterday, is back in operation. The power utility says load shedding could still be implemented should electricity not be used sparingly. ESCOM spokesperson Andrew Etzinger. Yesterday, the grid was under significant pressure as a result of two generators which went out of service. We'd be glad to say that one of those generators has come back into service, so the situation is much improved, and at this stage, we're not forecasting load shedding, but the system remains tight. Taking a look at your financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 11.71 South African rands, at 9.49 Botswana pulas, and at 6.50 Zambian kwachas. It is also trading at 0.66 to the British pound and at 0.84 to the euro. On the commodities market, gold is trading at $1,208 and platinum at $1,218 an ounce. Finally, the price of Brent crude oil is at $51.38 a barrel. For Channel Africa, I am Cholani Tulo. Thank you, Jolani. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, we're kicking off with football news. Zambian coach Ona Janza included nine players that won him the under-20 Kosafa Cup three years ago in South Africa while he was still in charge of the junior team in his final 23-man squad for the 2015 Equatorial Guinea Africa Cup of Nations. Since succeeding Frenchman Patrice Bommel in August last year, Janza has made a wholesome change to the Chipolopolo squad and the majority of the players that won the 2012 AFCON did not make the cut as they made way for four rookies. Surprisingly, though, there is still a place for the injured Mamelodi Sundowns goalkeeper Kennedy Mwini. 
Zambian coach Ona Janza explains. From the medical side, it has been uh, ruled that uh, it's uh, manageable before we we engage ourselves in the in the first uh, game of the Afcon. We have Munyao, who you saw him the, he, when he came in. He's got the abilities that he, he can move into the first choice. We have Titima. I think the three goalkeepers and if anything to say, all the 23 players that have been named, they can start in the first 11. Even though Zambia are on the rebuilding phase, Janza is confident that they are not going there to add the numbers, but to compete and represent their country with flying colors. We are mindful that the corporate image of the Zambian football has to be protected, meaning we have to also fight for good results. So we are not going there to, to, to participate because we are carrying a young uh, team. We are going there to compete with the young team because the young team also has been selected based on performance. Each player who is there, in spite of the age, he has merited the position based on performance. And Senegal coach Alain Gires has says striker Diafra Sako will not go to the African Cup of Nations because of a back injury and a major blow to the team's chances. Gires says the West Ham forward was struggling to move because of his back and won't be in Senegal's final 23-man squad. Gires says Sako will be replaced by Musa Konati of Swiss club Sion. However, Gires retained Southampton midfielder Sadio Mani in an extended group of players while his leg injury is evaluated. Southampton says Mani cannot play in the January the 17th to the February the 8th event because of a calf muscle problem. Jerez hasn't yet announced his final squad. On to cricket news. Struggling Zimbabwe included Prosper Utseya in its Cricket World Cup squad despite the ICC placing restrictions on his bowling. But opening batsman Vusis Banda has been out of new coach Dave Watmore's final 15-man squad for the tournament in Australia and New Zealand starting next month. Stuart Matsikanyeri has been called out of retirement to replace Sibanda. Spina Utseya was suspended last year while the ICC reviewed his action and although he has been cleared to play, he can bowl only medium pacers and not his favorites of spin. Sibanda was dropped after an extended run of poor form with his last half century in one-day cricket back in 2013. In tennis news, top South African tennis player Kevin Anderson started the year on a jarring note, losing to 177th-ranked Lukas Kubot in the first round of the ATP season-opening Brisbane International Open. And finally, with golf news, Annie Els is aiming to win his National Open for the sixth time but also has a new role to play in Johannesburg this year. Nick Dye reports. Well, the presence of Ernie Els in the field is bound to encourage the support of players and spectators alike. He first played the event back in 1986, winning for the first time in 92, and most recently in 2010. He and others are determined to restore the event to its previous prestige as befitting the second oldest Open, only behind the Open Championship itself. Now 45, he feels he's getting on in years, but he also feels his game's in good shape. He's eager to be competitive in a field which includes Brandon Grace, the winner of the latest European Tour event just prior to Christmas, as well as Charles Schwarzel, a host of other South African stars, and the likes of Eduardo Molinari, Paul Laurie, and the defending champion Morton Madsen. That's your Sport News this hour.
Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zora. Africa, amuka na unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at this hour. One suspect involved in the attacks on the officers of French magazine Charlie Hebdo surrenders to police and thousands of Central African refugees continue to flood into Cameroon. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Lebu Munamukhulu, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Busim Shongo with Yise Yabantwana Bami.
Abantu wana betuwa 